Now, Cosmic Horror famously is very hard to adapt, you know, granted. There is a, a creepiness and a um, sort of being awestruck and um, humbled. Insignificant. And made to feel small in the face of immensity. Yeah. There's certain things about Cosmic Horror that you can pull off in film, and it didn't seem like they were interested in doing that as much as, like, there is some sort of elder god or something in the background but we're going to focus on like this really gory gross out scene Welcome, friends, to episode 248 of the Ink to Film podcast, where we read the book and then see the movie. I'm filmmaker James Bailey. And I'm writer Luke Elliott. And this week, we discuss episodes five and six of Guillermo del Toro's 2022 series, Cabinet of Curiosities. Okay, so Halloween is technically come and gone, but we're still in the horror move, so we're going to talk about some H.P. Lovecraft adaptations. I celebrate horror year-round. We talk about this all the time. It's interesting because I feel like you have to kind of say that because I I do think some people view horror as like a very seasonal thing to be into. Um, But yeah, I I think that's not the case and that that there's a place for it all the time. And yeah, I'm interested to talk about these H.P. Lovecraft adaptations. Um, Bit of a mixed bag for me. The show's been out long enough that I've been seeing, you know, all sorts of different takes. Um, Trying not to let that affect me too much, but I think as far as like putting it in the context, I'm really curious to hear what you think of them, though. I agree. Ultimately, like we talked last week about how it was so exciting that we were going to get H.P. Lovecraft adapted by Guillermo del Toro in some way and how massive of a fan of H.P. Lovecraft del Toro is. And but I do think we should we should be clear that he's not directing these. Right. Because um, I, I think I've seen some of that um, confusion out there. A lot of people who maybe haven't looked into it and I don't know, I, I don't know how you can miss it with del Toro announcing it at the start of every episode, but still like this mood that like every one of these episodes is a del Toro creation. And I just don't know how true that is, right? Like, he's overseeing it, but how much comes down to the directors? It really just, it varies, you know what I mean? Project to project. The only people who know are going to be are going to be Del Toro and the directors. And I'm sure he was more involved in some and less involved in some. It's about collaboration and who wanted to collaborate. Um, I think he's probably the type of producer and filmmaker that, like, is willing to let his artists just, like, create what they want to, if that's what they're looking for, or collaborate. Well, I mean, the guy's busy, too, right? He's making Pinocchio. He's doing all this other stuff, uh, you know, at the same time this is being developed. So I'm sure it's easier for him to just, you know, be fairly hands-off, come in, record his little introductions. I'm sure he's, like, viewing cuts of things and giving feedback and notes. But beyond that, um, I, yeah, you know, is he on set? I doubt it. I don't know. It has his name on it, so you never know who's, you know, who's gonna like want their name out there without having some influence over it. But um, my point in bringing all that up is just that uh, I was expecting some some amazing stuff, and I think we got some really good stuff in, in ways. And then in other ways, there were some things that were kind of a bummer to me in these episodes. I walk away feeling happy that it exists, and I enjoyed myself watching these episodes. So if that like gives you a good idea like these these two hp lovecraft episodes were not anywhere close to my favorite in the series but i still had a good time the whole time i was watching them 
Um, it didn't overstay its welcome. And we do have a few more episodes that we're going to cover on a bonus episode. The ones that were not based on uh, short stories, existing short right. stories, we'll be covering. And I'm excited to see what they do with some of those as well, because I think that that can go in some really cool directions. Yeah, and that'll be over on Patreon. So if you want to hear, hear our thoughts on, what is it, number one, seven, and eight, we'll yes. be covering over there. And then we'll get a sense of like the really, the truly the whole show. Um, I'm going to hold off a little bit on my general thoughts on the series, I think, until the end um, of our coverage, because... I want to weigh in on, you know, where I think each episode stacks up to the, you know, to the source material. And then I guess my my, my one general thought I will give here early, I think both a strength of the show is its sort of classic feel and how it, it's kind of a throwback series. It's adapting a lot of older material. But at times, I think that is also what has been holding it back a bit. And I feel like some people are looking at it and going like, oh, this isn't quite what I wanted. And, and I'm wondering if it was this um, general attitude of we're going to adapt a bunch of classics. Um, I, I just want to see, I, I don't know if we're going to get another season of this. I hope we do. Um, and if we do, I would love to see, you know, six or seven out of the, out of the eight episodes next time be new authors, you know, living authors there's a lot of great modern horror out there that would feel more timely, I think, and, and be dealing with topics that are really resonant with people today. Um, and, and, you know, there's something fun about the classics. You know, you get to have a, a, a sort of a time piece, right, is you're, you're showing a lot of these, uh, you know, H.P. Lovecraft. It's like early 30s. You know, that's fun. And, and I'm not against some classics. You know, maybe you, you adapt a few classics next time, too. But I, I would just like to see more of an emphasis towards towards modern authors. Um, and, you know, if, if that means Del Toro needs to, like, be open to reading more modern authors than maybe he does. I don't know. Yeah. It, I will say that this this season, and I think he can get away from this, this season did have a sort of a through line of Lovecraftian horror. Two Lovecraft adaptations. Do we really need two? Maybe, maybe you could have just gone with one. But my point is just that, like, even the episodes that are not H.P. Lovecraft stories have the elements of what you could see as, as Lovecraftian horror. Oh, absolutely. There's a lot of influence. And so, like, maybe that was the through line that, that it was a little bit too samey all the way through. I think that going forward, I would if this show does get more, I agree with you. I would like to see some really different kind of stories. You know, I think that it's safe to say that this show so far hasn't been the smash hit that, like, Black Mirror was or... It is not having the word of mouth, at least, that something like Black Mirror. I wonder how it stacks up to even something like Love, Death, and Robots. Well, Love, Death, and Robots started slow, right? And that word of mouth builds up. And I think that the animation was a big part of it as well as people were like thirsty for more animation. And anyway, it snowballed and I think it's gotten to the size it is now. You know, and I'd like to see this show do that in a way. But like you said, there's a, there's a barrier to entry that's like, there's a lot of campiness in this. Being able to like approach that as a viewer and be like is this what i want out of this like you said maybe some people were expecting some more serious horror it's also weird to for for in my opinion to have a an entire series that does seem to have this lovecraftian thrust and yet one of the through lines for all the episodes we've seen is um you know obviously to lesser extent in some and to greater extent in others but like there's this real uh tendency towards the gross out and the gore um, and, and like, that's fine. But um, that was something that really seemed true in every episode. Like there was going to be some like big gross out moments. There was going to be gore. And sometimes it didn't fit as well as others. 
And I would have thought that a, a, a series that's tackling cosmic horror specifically, there's so many other things you can rely on there. Like think about Annihilation or think about um, other cosmic horror. Now, cosmic horror famously is very hard to adapt. You know, granted, there is a, a creepiness and a um, sort of being awestruck and um, humbled. Insignificant. And made to feel small in the face of immensity. Yeah. There's certain things about cosmic horror that you can pull off in film, and it didn't seem like they were interested in doing that as much as, like, there is some sort of elder god or something in the background, but we're going to focus on, like, this really gory, gross-out scene. And that was the main the main turning points in, in a lot of these episodes. Yeah, when I think of Lovecraftian horror, like the the gore and the gross out stuff isn't what pops into my mind. Yeah, that that's more of like a slasher thing or like a creature feature or like almost schlocky 80s horror. Um not saying that there isn't a place for this stuff. There is, but I don't know, it's kind of an odd pairing, I guess. But yeah, that's just like kind of general. We should probably dive into these specific episodes here soon. I did want to say um we are going to be covering our fourth and final uh, quarterly project for the year that will be let's see if I can get my schedule right we're going to cover a one-off next week then we're going to have a week take a week off for Thanksgiving where we release something from the vault and then we'll be back with our for our final quarterly project if you would like to get one of your suggestions as a potential we have a post on our patreon that I will pin that has comments underneath it. And all you have to do is vote for comments, and the comments are individual project suggestions. You can comment your own, vote for the ones you like, and what we will do is we will take the top four or so um, when it comes time a week before, and we'll release that as a poll. But if you want to get your suggestions in there while it's still sort of a wide open field, now's the time. Go on our Patreon, look for that top comment, and you can comment anything you want. Book and film, please. Uh, not TV, just because of our time constraints. We probably can't do a TV show. Um, but, you know, yeah, book and movie, and uh, it will be uh, considered. And then, yeah, please look at all the other comments and vote for any that uh, sound interesting to you, and hopefully we can we can get some good options for this final one of the year. I'm looking forward to seeing what the audience wants us to cover. So Yeah. Yeah, I feel like in the past it's it's led us to some things that we probably wouldn't have tackled at least when it when it happened. So, um it, that's a good way to use it, right? If you want to like push us towards things that you don't feel like are on our radar, you don't feel like we're going to choose on our own, um or maybe just something you've been dying for us to get to, you know, whatever you want to do it, you know, it's your it's your choice. Um go ahead and vote on that and then uh uh, once we get down to the final poll, that will be for patrons only. Um, so if you want to get your voice heard, just join our Patreon. So the first of the episodes that we covered in the show this week was episode five. And we're going to keep the format of what we've been doing consistent. We're going to have a timer here. We're going to do about 20 minutes on each of these two episodes. The first one being episode five of the show called Pickman's Model. All right, let's start the timer. Art student Will Thurber becomes friends with Richard Pickman, whose horrific works of art depicting demons and gruesome scenes mesmerize him. Years later, Thurber, now a museum curator, remains enthralled but disturbed by Pickman's work, suffering horrific dreams. Pickman, now a successful artist, drops in to visit, interacting with his wife Rebecca and young son James. When James also begins having terrifying dreams after seeing Pickman's work, Thurber confronts Pickman. Pickman begs him to come to his home and see his works, explaining that he only ever wanted for the works to be seen. 
Thurber lights the works on fire and accidentally shoots Pickman, who reveals that the works were not based on imagination, but real life and scenes of the future. A demon depicted in one of the paintings emerges and drags Pickman's corpse away. The next day, Thurber is horrified to find the museum displaying Pickman's works completely undamaged and that James and Rebecca have viewed them. He sends the two home and orders the paintings destroyed. Returning home, he discovers that the paintings have driven Rebecca mad. She has gouged out her eyes and butchered and cooked their son, just as depicted in one of Pickman's paintings. So this episode was directed by Keith Thomas, and I'll tell you a little bit about him. In 2017, he founded the production company Night Platform and began his career directing, writing, and producing the horror short film Arcane. In 2019, he directed the supernatural horror feature film The Vigil. In December of 2019, Thomas signed on to direct the Stephen King adaptation Firestarter, which was that one oh, that just okay. came out recently. Just came out, yeah. In September of 2021, Thomas was hired to direct an episode of Guillermo del Toro's Cabinet of Curiosities. In 20, in February of 2022, Thomas directed, wrote, and produced the music video I Disappear When You're Near for A Place to Bury Strangers album, See Through You. I don't know anything about that group. <laughs> Neither do I, but interesting music video. And then in, in May of 2022, Thomas stated that there are ongoing discussions to possibly expand Firestarter into a franchise. Oh, wow. And so I thought I heard that that movie did not do super well, but maybe I'm mistaken. Plus, I feel like in the era of COVID, it's really hard to know. Right. It's tough. I, I mean, I, I do remember seeing some reviews and I didn't think it was super well received, but yeah. maybe it did well at the box office and maybe, you know, it got enough viewers to, to warrant that. But interesting to note how this person is fairly new into yeah. the industry. I mean, probably been working for a long this time. This does seem like an up and comer kind of kind of talent to me. I, yeah. I do feel like being good at adaptations does seem to be a path for some people um, in the industry, um, kind of get known for that. I mean, look at Mike Flanagan is, is, is sort of known and famous for that now, um, specifically with Stephen King. But you see like Heiserer, right? We talked about uh, writing adaptations and then directing adaptations. So there is some of that going on. Maybe that's, uh, maybe that's what Keith Thomas here is doing. Um, but let's talk a little bit about this because – when we did our episode on the short stories, you said Pickman, Pickman's model was your favorite of all the stories we read. Mm -hmm. um, I said it was right. I think it was my second favorite. It was right there. Um, so it was my favorite of the two Lovecraft stories we read at the, at the very least. So coming into it, you know, we're both feeling pretty high on the short story. And we get this adaptation that um, I'm sure this is something we'll talk about a lot for the next one. But like, it's pretty different. Obviously, it's like, a reimagining, a changing of a lot of details, an expansion in some ways. You know, characters have different motivations. We get a lot more with like family life and all the stuff that wasn't really in the the original short story. Um, so, you know, on this podcast, we talk a lot about faithful adaptations, and then we talk a lot about directors coming in and really taking it their own way, and how both can work, um, but both also, I think, have pitfalls. Um, and sometimes the director coming in and really taking something a completely different direction is the riskier play um, because you could potentially alienate the original fans. And then also, if you don't nail it, like the people like the, the you know, not, the newcomers might not like it either. Um, not saying that's what happened here, but I'm just curious to know where you're at based on, you know, the fact that you really like the short story, how did you feel about this this adaptation? Yeah, there are things that I like about this episode, but overall, I think this is the biggest letdown of, a, of one of the episodes to me. Because you were, your hope was so high? It was very high, and I felt like it was an, 
not easy one to adapt. But no, I, th- I, I do think this is a tough one to do. It was a tough one to adapt, especially because you, the depiction of this horror had to be, it was really difficult to nail down. But you had to make a lot of choices about like visually what you were going to show, yeah. what this art was going to look like. In expanding it out, they turned this relationship between Pikmin and Thurber into like sort of an antagonist relationship. Like he's kind of a fan of him, but then he's not. And then he's kind of hates him and is like, you know, your your work is just ruining my life. And when he goes to the finale, basically, where he goes to his house and he goes down below and he's showing him all this stuff and he's like trying to destroy it. I found it to be less interesting than when he was fascinated by the horrific and was like just haunted by it, but respected it. And then this turned it into this thing that was like, it was just something to be seen as hated. And I felt the idea behind the story being there is beauty in the horrific and there is like more to you, there's something to be said about interpretation of art and, and a lot of this other stuff that I feel like there was a little bit in this in this adaptation, but I was missing a lot of that that fascinated me in the original story. The story works really well on a meta level, and that was something we talked about, like the nature of horror fiction and the effect it can have on you and the way we view the creators of truly horrific pieces of art and, and how it doesn't fit into polite society. And like there's all these interesting things being discussed. Um, beyond the pages. And that's one of the things we both really liked about the short story. And I agree. I think a lot of that, unfortunately, is absent here. Um, And I don't know how, like, on purpose it was, but because things were taken in sort of broad directions, there's an ambiguity and a um, subtext that is sort of lacking at times in this adaptation. I think it's still there to an extent if you want to see it that way. But it is just not as clear to me that that was what the director was going for. Um, now, all that is to say, like, I ultimately had a pretty good time with this one. And um, I I slightly disagree with you in the sense that I disliked the next episode more um, as far as an adaptation goes. But, you know, I think both do have some things going for them. Ultimately, I was okay with this episode, but I can see where you're coming from, from like where your maybe your hope was for it. And it is kind of a letdown in that regard, because it could have been maybe something truly spectacular. And I think it, it, unfortunately, it was okay. Like it was a solid episode for the series. But as far as like uh, an adaptation of this really interesting story that has the potential to do so much more, it, it does fall a bit short. Um, and, and I think you touched on one of the key things and that is the relationship he has with Pikmin's work. Um, our main character here, he, um, at first he is intrigued by it and we see that and that's right on, right? Like Pikmin shows up in his class and he's, and he's, you know, drawing this, this, uh, it's like an anatomical drawing they're all doing of this model Yet when he sneaks around Ben Barnes, what's what's the character's name? I'm, I'm drawing a blank on it. Will Thurber. Thurber, yes. So so Thurber like sneaks around and takes a look at what Pikmin's drawing, and he sees our painting. He sees that there's this like rotting flesh, and like there's multiple limbs, and he seems intrigued by it. He seems engaged by it. He wants to know more. He's like, this is something truly different and dark and fascinating. I love this from Thurber. I want to see more of this. But uh, unfortunately, I think it immediately got into this like witchcraft supernatural element when he goes to the, when he goes to his um, apartment and he is sort of haunted by it. He starts seeing visions of this like witch woman. 
the addition of all of that also I felt was unnecessary and, yeah. and sort of was they were almost trying to tie the two Lovecraft like adaptations together in that way. And I didn't think that that was necessary. I didn't appreciate it. I, I It was just it turned what was supposed to be the horror of the story was supposed to be this work. And like, yeah, at the end, it's revealed there's demons. But then you add in like witchcraft and things underneath the ground like earlier on, which was kind of, I think there's a little bit of it in the story. Yeah, but it's more just like texture. Yeah. To have him seeing witches and like smoke monsters and things. It's very, yeah, it's very on the nose. Like there is something darkly magical about these paintings and it is like cursing him to look at them. And that I'm okay with that implication and that um, subtext, but leave it as subtext. Don't make it the text. And like, that's what happened here. It's like, that's what's happening um, now, if you want to view this as like the effect of viewing disturbing art and like the 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 way that can sort of alienate you from polite society or maybe the sort of a, a desensitization that could happen, like a metaphor for that, like that all but that's the subtext now that you have to seek out versus being like um, the main thrust and then the subtext being that maybe something supernatural is going on. It's, it's just like a reversal of those two things as far as, as, far as their emphasis. And um, it, I do think it suffers a little bit for it. Um, we do get this time jump, and we get Pikmin coming back later. And you're right. He, t- he does have this, like, semi-antagonistic, maybe just full-on antagonistic relationship. He shows up, and he's sort of, like, delighting in the fact that he's showing his art to um, his son, to Thurber's son. And it seems like he is deliberately cursing the family to an extent. Um, and that was a little weird for me. Like, uh, I, I like the idea of this, like, haunted artist in Pikmin, but who's maybe a bit disturbed. But the idea of him truly being an antagonist and, like, coming after him in a way, it, it feels weird. It doesn't know. feel like there's motivation for that. Like, why would he? Why would yeah. he go about doing this? He does say at one point that like he seems like he he respects his opinion and he wants him to view his work because he respects his opinion. Which why would he come after him then? Focus on that. That's I think that's interesting, right? Like he's someone who hasn't had a lot of um, praise or people who understand his work. So he's like, oh, you actually understand me. I want you to come see this. Uh, that's more interesting to me than like this weird, like, I'm going to force you to do it, like, you have to come view this, or I'm going to, you know, and and then I'll agree to leave your life and burn my work. Like, he had to make all these agreements to get him to go. Um, I don't know. It's strange. Ben Barnes is, like, is is an interesting guy. I think he's well-performed here. It's just the writing, I don't know. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. Actually, Crispin Glover, I I did like the performance out of him. It was a weird accent, which I was supposed to be, like, Northeastern, I think. It was weird, right? Like, it was very um, hammy almost. Um, And it it played into that change to the character to make him a little bit more cartoonish. Um, And I just, yeah, I'm not sure I love that choice. I I do think it was a choice. but yeah, I like the performance, regardless of the writing that was in this episode. I thought that Crispin Glover gave it like some interesting depth to the to this character and it was creepy and weird and and pulled it off well. And Ben Barnes was pretty good as well. They d- they had this effect they would do when he'd view the paintings where everything would start shaking and you'd see like the creatures would sort of move and lurch within the paintings themselves. What did you what did you think of that effect? I actually thought that was a good way to because we were talking about like how do you represent this horror and how do you represent like how it seems like it's alive and scary and everything and like to have it moving I'm like okay good choice there because that that works in a different way than just a stationary lockdown shot of a painting that looks kind of scary 
Um, so I appreciated that. I thought that that was actually pretty effective. I, and honestly, their depiction of like horrific stuff like was was just enough for me. I didn't. It wasn't. It didn't feel lacking in the story. Yeah. Ultimately, I think the art the art was okay. I, I there was a weird choice. This is another example where I'm saying like sometimes the show kind of gets in its own way and goes too far. At one point, Thurber is having this dream, which, you know, side note, there's maybe a little too many times of uh, something spooky happens and then a character wakes up and it was a, it was a dream. You can only play that card. Like, I would like to just see it maybe once. But once you've done it once in an episode, don't do it again. <laughs> well, not to mention all the episodes seem to have that going on also. There was a lot of it. Yeah. Um, but anyway, um, he has this dream where he walks into a... Uh, he walks into the living room and he sees the feast and the feast is of this like person. Like the, we hear that um, this is like the ancestors of Pikmin and um, she ate her like husband or something or like served him at a feast and a sacrifice. That's fine. And I was even okay with there's like the crab legs and stuff that looked like they were like almost like there was like squid or like octopus. So they were going a little bit Lovecrafting with it. But then there was also like, cockroaches crawling all over the place like it seemed rotted that's the thing where i'm like you don't need to do that like the idea of serving up a human being as a feast is already horrific you don't need to add in a bunch of like cockroaches crawling out of it i don't know it's like to me that's almost going too far um and and it sounds weird but like truthfully like sometimes like pull back a little bit and let the horror be what it is conceptually rather than the horror of showing a bunch of scary shit rapid fire. It, it takes away from the person, right? You, you're like, oh, gross, they're eating a person or whatever. And then they're like, oh, gross, there's bugs. And if you just have a person there you're, and left, you're left to think about, oh, they're eating a person. Right. Like if they had been eating a meal that looked like a meal like you could actually eat, but then all of a sudden it's revealed it's a person. That's horrific. Like think about Hannibal does this like really, really well. Like, you know, Hannibal, he, he like does fine dining of like human beings. But and so there's something like disgusting and t- stomach churning as you realize like the food looks appetizing, even though you know what's in there. But instead, yeah, they just look totally insane. They're they're eating rotten food. There's cockroaches crawling over the table. Like that's so beyond like something you can even imagine someone it's like, doing. It's like a haunted house, right? Exactly. It's going back to that like really broad horror and. Yeah, that's the kind of stuff. Again, I just want you to back away from it. You, it's kind of going a little bit too far, trying to do too much. We, we only have about three minutes left. I want to talk about the end also. Yeah, we got to talk about the end. It's the big reveal. It's the big scare. It's the turn. It's it's a lot of stuff. And this comes back, the, the threads back in that witchy stuff where all along it's this curse of the witch or whatever his family's been cursed and they drew these things that would happen and they would curse people. There's sort of an unclear sequence at this art display where I wasn't sure, like, was this Pikmin's big gala? And if so, why did Thurber go there with his family to view the art? Well, the art was supposed to be destroyed, right? Yeah, but he took his whole family there to see it. And then, like, I don't know, it was just weird. And then, like, it was unclear whether or not what happened with his friend who had, like, cut his own face. Did that really happen? So so I, w- I kept coming into the, like, is, is Thurber losing his mind? Because his wife sees the painting and she's like, oh, yeah, this is fine. No big deal. But he is disturbed by it. So I, there is this, like... Uh, potential for it just being that Thurber is losing his mind that's interesting to me and I like that ambiguity and I want more of that ambiguity and I think the ending pushes it way into the supernatural 
right. zone instead. I think the ending makes you think that he did that actually in the gala like that. He did cut out his eyes. Out exactly. His eyes it's like that's all real. It's all been happening. And to, so the idea of having a haunted painting that like you're haunted by and you don't want other people to see it's like the ring, right? You don't want people to view the tape or whatever like that. That's scary on its own but then you start adding in like everybody's seeing it and getting affected by it it's almost scarier if you're the only one getting affected by it because then you have everybody looking at you like you're you're, you've lost your mind and so ultimately it comes down to the wife is like cooking the sun and she's gouged out her eyes gouged out her eyes which looked i don't know kind of hokey right like it's i know it's a tough effect to get the like hollow eyes it looks okay i guess but it takes me out of it a little bit. In a better story, it wouldn't have bothered me at all. Yeah. She's so like, she seems to be able to see. Yeah. (laughs) Which doesn't make sense. Like, that's the kind of stuff that bothers me, right? Like, if you're going to do this, at least play it straight and she shouldn't be able to see. Her eyes are gone. But you've taken it into such a supernatural zone where she's almost like, I, I wasn't even sure if this was really happening. But then the implication is it is because we don't get any other like we don't get any signal that maybe this didn't happen. Like we end on the head in the in the oven and that's the end of the episode. So it really happened, I guess. And we we just think back to how the short story ended. It ended with him like so he and Pikmin sort of like Pikmin fights off this whatever this is. And it's like an unknown thing. And then third. Thurber like gets out of there and he's like reciting the story back to somebody and he's and, and the end of the story is that he's seen all these horrific things the reveal is that, that who the model really is or that the model is a real thing he can't like words can't express how terrifying it was yet he's trying to um I, I do think this is a story that inherently is going to work better written because of the as we've talked about like the imagination is it engages with your imagination so much and asks you to provide all these details. Um, whereas in a movie, it's like you have to make decisions and you have to show stuff um, or it's going to get frustrating because it's just going to be a bunch of people looking at paintings that we never see, which would just be frustrating. <laughs> right. Yeah. All right. The timer has gone off. But uh, the idea of the end of the story, you, you're leaving it off. And the horror is like there's something out there that hasn't been addressed. And there's things out there that we can't understand. Whereas here we like kind of saw that with this demon like dragging him down below. But it just it hit a little different than I was hoping. Yeah. And, and Pikmin at the end, he almost had a moment where he was like, oh, I just wanted you to look at my art. And like it, it tried to like back off the antagonistic thing to where we actually felt kind of. I don't know, bad, but like, just like maybe he didn't deserve to get shot. Um, but like, it didn't work because they had shown him to be such a villain throughout. I, like, I didn't care. And the the reveal, obviously, of him, rather than him telling us like he does in the, in the in this adaptation, he's like, by the way, this is what's going on. The, the demons are all real. Everything's real. And then he gets dragged down. And in the story, there's something more eloquent about like, him seeing the scrap of paper, realizing it's a photograph, and then like sort of co- inferring that okay, these things are it's real. It's not so on the nose, right? Like we're getting our hands held through all of this as they're trying to do this reveal, which like is not that you know what I mean. Like it's obvious when the freaking demon comes out that it's real. It did look cool, by the way. I like the design of that final demon with the big eyes. The creature design and some of the effects, and that the, the, that's not the problem I have with this show. Not that they're, and, you know, not that I have a lot of problems, but I, I feel like they did a good job of nailing down a lot of that stuff. So, so yeah, uh, before we leave this episode, and, and I know we're going to do our final ratings at the end, but just like I thought it was okay overall. Like I had a decent time watching it, but there was a bit of a letdown as far as like what I feel like could have been achieved. Not to say it wasn't a high level of difficulty, because I think it was, but it just didn't quite get what could have been a truly great episode. 
All right, so episode six is called Dreams in the Witch House, and I'll start my timer. Walter Gilman witnesses his twin sister, Epperlee's spirit be dragged away upon her death to the forest of lost souls. Years later, as a grown man, he seeks to enter the location in hopes of saving her. He rents a room in the house of an executed witch, Kezia Mason, and takes an indigenous drug designed to take him to the forest. After several attempts, he locates his sister and even finds that he is able to bring a piece of her dress into the real world with him. His attempts gain the attention of the spirit Kezia and her familiar, a human-faced rat, Jenkins Brown. When Walter successfully brings Epperly back, they learn that Kezia and Jenkins have also come back, and that Walter must die before dawn in order to bring one of them back permanently. Kezia attempts to kill Walter, but Epperly kills her and peacefully passes away herself. However, Jenkins takes advantage of the situation and burrows into Walter's body, bursting forth and killing him before dawn. He then possesses Walter's body triumphant. I think it's Kaziah, but yeah. <laughs> Kaziah, sorry. All right, so this is directed by Catherine Hardwick, who is an American film director, producer, designer, and screenwriter. Her directorial work includes 13, which she co-wrote with Nikki Reed, the film's co-star, Lords of Dogtown, The Nativity Story, Twilight, Red Riding Hood. Wait, twi- like the original Twilight films? The original Twilight film, She yeah. directed that? Yep, in 2008. Wow, okay. Red Riding Hood, <laughs> Plush, Miss You Already, and Miss Bala. I haven't seen like any of those, to be honest. Oh, really? There's a few, Yeah, there's a few in here that I've seen. Lords of Dogtown, Twilight. Um, Hardwick became a production designer working with film directors such as Cameron Crowe, Richard Linklater, and David O. Russell. She was in- influenced by them, gaining experience in their techniques and learning informal aspects from professional conversations. She talked to some about her desire to be a filmmaker and received advice and tips. While working with such big-name directors, she was able to study their techniques Quote, I always told them I really want to make my own movies, and they were all very generous and gave me tips. End quote. Her career as a production designer was crucial and beneficial to the molding of her career as a director. Her time spent with these directors aided her and were able to give her a sense of direction. Quote, as you're riding around with the director location scouting, you hear a lot of conversations and you start piecing them together. So I think that helped me. End quote. She even worked with fellow female director Lisa Cholodenki on her film Laurel Canyon in 2002. Aside from her time spent working alongside directors, Hardwick continued to work on her own projects such as scripts, short films, and teaching herself Final Cut Pro. Hardwick even took it upon herself to take acting classes to become a better director. Through the 1990s and early 2000s, Hardwick worked as a production designer on films including Tombstone, Tank Girl, Two Days in the Valley, The Newton Boys, Three Kings, and Antitrust. I have seen some of those. Um, So one thing I want to get out of the way here before we get into it properly is that I was frustrated to see a adaptation of H.P. Lovecraft, which we've talked about. He's sort of an infamous author. He is well-known for his contributions to horror, but also well-known bigot who had a lot of racism, not only in his works, but in his life. And we see this adaptation come in, and I thought it was really unfortunate that several racist tropes are brought with it and introduced to the story that weren't even present in the story itself. Um, The spiritual guidance and spiritual uh, assistance by the uh, people of color to our white main character throughout. Um, it's, just, it's, it's a trope that has been, you know, well analyzed. Um, Spike Lee coined the term uh, magical Negro trope um, when talking about this. 
and you look at the the other painter who's in the house you look at the nun uh and then and then even um this indigenous person who's like providing a spiritual journey to him um it's yeah all of these tropes are uncomfortable uh and i it's weird to see them all crammed into one story and then even weirder that that isn't in the original story all of that's added <laughs> well this story is completely changed completely in my changed they, they Very almost different. they took like about one percent of the of the source material in this case and i mean to be fair probably like 10 percent but even so it, it ended up being a totally different story As an adaptation, I think that it missed the mark because there's so much different that it's almost inherently a different story. And then on its own, if I was just to see the episode, like you've said, there are some problematic things. And then you get this sort of almost Pan's Labyrinth sort of esque story where they're like, there's like this magical forest thing. I'm just uncomfortable comparing this to Pan's Labyrinth because how much better Pan's Labyrinth is. I just mean like this idea of like a portal with like a magical world behind it. Yeah, I get where you're going. Kind of up these woods that are kind of like uh, almost like purgatory is my my read on it. Whereas the original story was like he's in this house and it's a portal and a gateway to like another dimension cosmic yeah cosmic things and crazy entities where where there are elder gods and like exactly we didn't get a lot of that no very little this just seems very much like the afterlife um which is a very different kind of thing than this multi-dimensional travel and when she gets brought back she's called a ghost and yeah it's it doesn't it it really is just afterlife okay so yeah let's talk about the sister um that starts off with the death death of the sister in a scene that i thought looked pretty hokey all of a sudden, she's standing there. She's this like semi-translucent, but kind of solid girl, you know, who's looking at herself and going like, "Oh, I guess I died." And the reactions from the actors as they're looking, these kid actors as they're looking at each other, it's just I don't know. I didn't buy it. And then she gets pulled out of the house and like in, into this forest thing, and then it sets up for this journey where he's going to be searching for his sister. And I thought, okay, he's got a motivation that's driving him to seek out the supernatural and i i assume this is going to lead him to the witch house okay you know i'm fine with that but what i he needs to get caught up in something so different than what he wanted because the witch house to me was yeah this interdimensional space and instead it becomes like a portal to the afterlife it's all about his sister he brings her back across she looks the same as she did early uh, as far as like being the semi-translucent ghost who at times has some solidity to her. All of that just didn't work for me. I didn't think it looked very good. I didn't buy it. And it and it isn't what this story's about. So it always felt like a weird fit. And that's really the heart of the story. I mean, it, it's turned from a story where this is like this academic who's in an attic and he has to find a room and yeah he kind of just is staying there because he can't afford anywhere else right like and he's like kind of curious about it but yeah and then his call his roommate or colleague or whatever they're like they're they're like talking about some of the stuff that is theoretical and and then it starts to become real for him in his dreams it's all about like the multiverse theory and like his like he's studying whether or not it's you know real and you could have a multiverse and then like this, the house really comes into play and it starts backing up some of those theories. And they they introduce, and there's this idea that like maybe the witches were able to to tap into some multiversal thing, but uh, uh, it's not 
like in this story, it's just like afterlife, like we've talked about. And then they introduce this weird drug. The idea of introducing this drug and having him go to like these drug den areas where he's taking it is taking away from the fact that the portal is supposed to be the house. Like he's if he's going there, he can go to the forest just from taking the drug. The horse, the house doesn't seem to matter except for it has the witch in it, I guess. But he doesn't he see the witch just by taking the drug, or is the first time he sees the witch in the house? I think the first time he sees the witch is when he's in the house because she comes. Now I will say the witch at times looked really good. Like there, the moment where he first takes the drug and she kind of comes out of the shadows and you just see the two eyes sort of glowing. I thought all that looked great. Um, and the show continues to look good. And, and in, uh, in, in defense of the director, or at least like some accolades I'll give her, is I thought the show visually, or th- this episode visually looked good. Like there was some really interesting uses of a color, um, like sort of like a cold and warm. Like you'd get a lot of blues, but then you'd also get a lot of oranges and fiery colors and like on this, in the same frame. Um, and I thought, so at times I thought it like looked really interesting. Um, uh, old Ron Weasley. It was good to see him again. Um, Rupert Grant. Yeah. I love Rupert Grant. Yeah, yeah, he's got you know he's got this like white in his hair now, and like I thought he did a good job. You know, my problem was not his performance at all. Um, I do think it's sort of uh, interesting that instead of it being Brown Jenkin, they switched it to be Jenkin Brown. And I wonder if that was because they felt like it was a a racist thing to call him Brown Jenkin. And that's the kind of thing where I'm like, that small change you made is so like surface level compared to like using a racist trope which you would then introduced into it so i just think it like missed the mark in that regard um and then like brown jenkin jenkin brown whatever he has no place in this story anymore he makes no sense why is he there when that started happening like the world of the story had not explained what this was or why it exists um it made no sense. And then like to have him be the like big villain or the reveal at the end is that he's puppeting our main character, like a fucking Kaiju. Well, like, well, so what? <laughs> we, start, <laughs> we started the story and he's like, don't worry, this will have a happy ending and all this stuff. And we're getting like a, a like a narration over the, yeah. over the beginning. And then like it, the, it's all, that's all to set up this like joke that they have at the end where he's like, yeah, he's like puppeting this, this person. He's like, see, I told you it's a, it's a happy ending for me. Basically. Yeah. <laughs> Just such a bad way to end. I thought, I didn't think um, we were going to get the chest burster. So I was like, this doesn't make any sense anymore in this story. Like we've completely changed what the story's about. That shouldn't happen anymore. But sure enough, it does. So that's like this weird thing where it's like, you've changed everything else about the story yet you felt like that's the one thing you can't change. So you do it, but it makes no more. It doesn't make sense anymore from the story that you've made to have that happen. We don't know how he got in his body. It gets never really explained. Is he a real thing or is he an imaginary thing? Like, we we don't know. And none of it's really explained. And, and I said earlier that the, the creatures overall in the whole show look great. This is probably my least yeah. favorite of the of all of them. Did not look very good. I want to give a little anecdote. <laughs> Um, I was watching this episode um, with my wife and she does not watch horror, right? Um, but what she does occasionally do is she'll be like doing the dishes. She'll be like walking around, doing something around the house, you know, and then I'll have something on and sometimes she'll get sort of drawn in by it, right? Like, oh, I'm kind of curious, you know, oh, is that is that Ron Weasley? Oh, interesting. You know, like that kind of thing started happening. She took a seat next to me. 
and was watching the opening of this episode. And this was early enough in the night to where she could have finished it out. But she's watching, watching, watching. And it's I think it's interesting. It's intriguing her. It's drawing her in. And then that fucking Jenkin Brown shows up, starts talking, starts running around. She's like, what the hell's that? Like, that's weird. And then, like, within a minute or two of him showing up on screen, she's like, yeah, I think I'm going to get ready for bed. And then she just gets up and walk away. And, like, that was the thing to me where it's like, that was the turnoff. It was like, this was an interesting thing, and she was drawing her in, and then that comes in, it makes no fucking sense. It looks kind of bad. He's talking, and he sounds weird. He's, like, almost kind of a jokey character. I I don't know if we're supposed to be afraid of him or laugh at him or what. His connection to the witch is unclear. Like, what is any of this? I I also think, just in general, that's a good point of reference for... There is a little bit of intrigue in the story, like you said. The beginning's a little weird with the the daughter dying or the the sister dying, but there's an intrigue of like him trying to tap into the supernatural, and that the first like third of the episode draws you in, and I think that that was the right time to check out because it ultimately just starts like pretty quickly, just careening downhill. Yeah, that told me something about this episode, right? Like, it's not welcoming to people who don't know anything about H.P. Lovecraft and don't haven't haven't read the story and are not big fans of horror, you know, totally doesn't interest it just there for the story, period. That was the only reason she was getting drawn in and then it loses it lost her. And to me, like I know the story, so like I have a built in you know, interest and I'm trying to see what they've done with it and like so I'm gonna stick around, but um you know, ultimately I, I think her reaction was probably the right one, <laughs> which is eh, I don't need to watch this. <laughs> and that's to speak to somebody who who's like you said, not there for the HP Lovecraft right. part of it. I'm curious what you think about HP Lovecraft fans seeing both of these adaptations. Let's talk about how we think people feel about these. I've seen a range now. Like I said, it's been long enough to where I've seen a bit of from both sides. I have seen some people who liked it. I've even seen some people who said this was their favorite episode. Um, I wonder if some of it comes down to like, it looked good. Rupert Grant was there. Some people thought like the witch was really scary. And there was some moments where he's like paralyzed that I did think were really creepy. But I, I am more in the camp of this isn't, this isn't a good adaptation of HP Lovecraft. And I'm not the biggest Lovecraft fan. Um, but I know some big Lovecraft fans are out there saying like, this isn't even an adaptation of this. Um, and, and I totally get it. Like it really isn't. It's, it's, it's almost like loosely connected to the story but even that like it totally misses the heart and that's something we talk a lot about on this podcast like if you are going to adapt something and change it we like it when it still feels like at its heart the dna is the same or, or, or something some building blocks were authentically chosen and then organically made out of the source material and this just doesn't do that for me. So one thing we talked about in the story, and, and it was kind of a criticism, is that um, too often the story would do this reveal of like, oh, these dreams are actually happening. But that's saying to me that the core of this story is kind of the like question of whether or not our main character is hallucinating, is losing his mind, or if this stuff's real. All that ambiguity is gone here. Yet, the story tries to capitalize on that in a way that I don't think it, it, it can because of the nature of the reveals. So, what I'm getting at is he has this um, friend character who I actually think is very interesting. He's an interesting character. He's, he's a skeptic who has been along the journey with him. And his sort of reveal is like, I've never seen a ghost. 
yet I've been there with you all along investigating this stuff. You have this core memory where you saw something happen to your sister, and that to you is proof. That can be an interesting dynamic if the story itself isn't so firmly in the camp of the supernatural being real. So because it's so firmly in that camp, like that's like I just know he's going to be proven wrong. So I'm less caught up in it. Whereas, and, and like he's looking at him, he's like, oh, you're taking these drugs and you're hallucinating, you're seeing things. Okay, like I like his skepticism is warranted in a world where the supernatural may or may not be real. But in this world where it's so clearly real, I'm less interested in this storyline and this this sort of reveal of him at the end where he's like, oh, I guess this stuff all is real. Like the story doesn't agree with that in a way. It's like, of course it's real. Like we've been watching it unfold the whole time with no ambiguity about it. Yeah, it, it was also just a side note. Interesting to see this actor pop up again because I just I think just seen him for the first time in, in Rings of Power. Oh, yeah, you're right. Okay, that's who that is. His face was so familiar. I was like, who is this? It took me a little bit to figure uh, it out. But Okay. Yeah, I thought he was good. It felt to me like the story didn't know what it wanted to do. It tried to do a little bit of everything, and it just didn't all come together. And ultimately, I also like didn't feel like the, the director liked the story that much because there seemed to be no attempt to take what was working about that story and what people love about that story. Um, and made it famous and and replicate that in any way. It was more just like, uh, yeah, I'll do an H.P. Lovecraft adaptation. People will watch it, and I'll just do my own thing. My my timer just went okay. off here. Um, One side note, uh, if there's a giant patch of leaky black mold on the ceiling, maybe don't put your bed right underneath it. <laughs> yeah, right. It's probably not the best place to, to sleep every night. <laughs> You maybe slide that bed over if that's where it is, right? Probably want to move out in general because that <laughs> yeah. black mold infestation has gotten pretty bad. Yeah, that's the true horror. <laughs> that's right. See, like if there had been an implication, maybe they're all just fucking like hallucinating based off of this black mold. That would have been interesting. <laughs> I thought that this was going to be I thought that black mold was going to be like the same substance as that thing that he was taking, that the, the, the drug that he was taking. In some way, I thought, and I was like, all right, that's going to tie it together. It's, no. it's just this, like, set dressing of creep, of, like, gross and creepy that, that, that this show yep. does so much throughout all of its episodes, for the most part, right. that I'm not as big a fan of. We've now covered all of the adaptation episodes. In our usual way, we're going we're gonna to pick our, which we thought was better, but we're going to go episode by episode. So let's start with the first one, Graveyard Rats. Kuttner, I believe, was the was the author, and then we got this, uh, this episode two here. I... Wasn't a big fan of the story. Also wasn't the biggest fan of the episode. I guess I'll give it to the episode, though, just because I thought there was a few things to like in there. Um, the short story left me wanting in some ways. I don't know. This is a tough one just because I di- wasn't a big fan of either. Um, but yeah, I- I'll give it to the, to the episode. It edges it out for me. Yeah, I'm right there with you. Both were fine. I, I will also go with you and pick the show just for the fact that they added a little bit of this interesting eldritch god under submerged temple and super campy. It knew what it was doing. It was funny enough. It was, you know, I think it's not for everybody, but I'll take the adaptation in this case. So the next one is the autopsy. You start off on this one. Yeah, this is probably going to be the hardest to pick for me. I'm going to take the adaptation. I thought that there was things that I, I missed in the adaptation, but overall, I think this stands tall as one of the the reasons why this show should exist. And they do a really good job of capturing the helplessness and they do a good job of capturing the grotesque that was in the story. 
And overall, I thought it, it really captured what the story was trying to t- to tell. And great performance by um, F. Murray Abraham. And just good direction overall. Visually yeah. interesting. I agree with all of that. Um, I agree that it, it was a good adaptation. I think it's maybe the best. Um, although I really like the next episode. Um, but as far as like a faithful adaptation that nails it, this is a really good one. Um, I think it's got the strongest source material and, um, you didn't, you didn't like try and go away from, you didn't run away from the story. You like leaned into it. You did the thing. So all the props, um, for the adaptation, but I'm going to give it to the story just because it was my favorite of all the things we read. And I had such a good time with the fiction and I thought it was so well done that even though this is my favorite adaptation, it just doesn't feel right for me to to not give it up for uh, Michael Shea or Shia. Still not sure how to say that name. Um, but yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna give it to the story. But it's damn close, and and I uh, I'm not gonna fault you for that one. Um, I'll start off on this next one. I think uh, it, I this is one where I'm gonna give it to the show because I really really liked this version of the outside. Um, Emily Carroll's uh, webcomic, Some Other Animals Meet. Um, cool story. I like the webcomic fine. I do think it was very short and it left a lot to the viewer to sort of interpret. Um, this was a more complete story to me, um, more dynamic. That stab scene is going to is gonna stay with me. It's still one of my... It, that might be my favorite scene from this entire show. Um, it's, it's just as far as like... It's going to stick with me. It's so good. Um, maybe my favorite performance too, uh, uh, you know, from our lead here, Makuchi, uh, Kate Makuchi, yeah. Kate Makuchi. Um, she was so good. So for me, uh, it's going to be the show here. Um, even though I do, I did like the story, but yeah, it's the show. This was, this is my favorite episode. I think, um, as much as I liked, uh, the autopsy, it's kind of a one, a one B. Um, I've still, this is one a, this is my favorite. Yeah, I'm right there with you. I'm taking the adaptation in this case. I thought that the webcomic, like, I, I love the visual medium of comics, and I thought that it was a really cool way to represent it in the way that you can use webcomics to be its own kind of co- comic strip, like, in, in sort of a scrolling fashion. Um, amazing art. The art was, like, incredible. And I, I'm definitely going to go back to visit more of Emily Carroll's work. Yeah, I'll, I'm going to read through that book we got because a lot of those look really cool. Right. But overall, this 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 Anna Lily Amarpour adaptation, and I'm not surprised that she has one of the best episodes. It's so it's got such precise vision. Um, the performances are amazing. It looks incredible. It, it was just all in all. It was just it was one of the best episodes. It's the standout in- uh, of what we've seen. And, and it feels the most different. It's based off the newest material. This is the direction I want to see the show move in. I want to see more. I got season two that's more in line with this kind of stuff. Yeah, I agree. I will say one thing I've seen a lot of interesting pushback on is people who don't like this episode because they didn't like the main character. And this is almost like a big conversation you can have about horror in general and likable protagonists. Um, But the one thing I will say is I'm not accusing people of this just as a general statement. There is a sense that women main characters need to be likable and that doesn't apply to men. We are used to seeing unlikable men as our main characters. We are not used to seeing unlikable women. And sometimes you will get very strong visceral reactions from people who maybe don't even realize what's happening, who don't like something. They hate it because they don't like the woman at the heart of it. And I agree. This character is not likable. 
She's weird. She makes bad decisions. She uh, is ultimately the villain at the heart of it. Like you could argue, I agree with all of that. Yet I still love the episode because I, I I'm okay with an unlikable main character, um, and I think we should be more open to them being women uh, in a way that maybe historically we haven't been. I totally agree, and we we talked about some of that last week as well when we when we covered that episode. Let's keep our let's keep our snake draft thing we're doing here going, and I want you to weigh in first on this next episode, which is going to be the Pigman's model. Sure, Pigman's model. We talked about it a lot this episode, and, and I think a lot of my reasoning is is in there. But I'm going to take the source in this case, the original H.P. Lovecraft story, and, and it just comes down to like how. There's more subtlety to it. There's more to dig into. And I, I like the the relationship of the characters more, the way that like he he stays true to the fact that he still thinks that this person's a fantastic artist, even though he's haunted by this stuff. And and the reveal I just thought was more interesting. And, you know, there's some good things in the episode, but overall I'm taking taking the original. I'm with you, man. Uh HP Lovecraft fans out there who maybe are frustrated with me over the years, you know, kind of shitting on HP Lovecraft, even though I hadn't read him. Um, this is the story that made me understand some of the appreciation people have for what Lovecraft is able to do in his fiction. This is the story that makes me feel like I'm actually interested to read some more Lovecraft in the future. I liked this story a lot. Um, I thought the adaptation wasn't as bad as our next episode. I think this is the better of the two uh, Lovecraft adaptations, but ultimately it falls shy of the story, which I think is superior. So yeah, giving it to the story. And then I guess I'll start off on this last one to continue our format here. Um, This is a tough one, Dreams in the Witch House, because I didn't like this story a lot. I do think it shows the Lovecraft mythos in a way that um, is interesting, right? Like to, to get to see how he does these these multi-dimensional gods. Um, but it wasn't my favorite. And I felt like the reveals were redundant. It went on a little bit too long. Um, so ultimately, I didn't love the story. But this adaptation, I thought, was a failure, ultimately. So uh, in that regard, I got to give it to the story that at least had some things going for it. So I'll give it to the story here. Yeah, I agree. After reading Pikmin's Journal, going into this next story, Dreams in the Witch House, I was excited about what the possibility of an H.P. Lovecraft story could be, and it was it, it was just fine to me. I, I there wasn't anything that really struck me as like wildly influential or yeah. very interesting. His his way he describes the unknowable, the un the uh, ineffable, the things you can't put into words, right? That word uh, that word uh, got from Good Omens. Um, <laughs> um, that is the thing that shows to me really well yeah. in Dreams in the Witch House. Agreed. And, and like getting to see what it's like in these dreams and, and like being around these entities. Yeah, that's definitely the, the thing that stands out to me. I mean, we had like sentient pyramids and like starfish people and like lots of weird ass shit in this story that none of that's in, in this adaptation. Overall, the story just came down to, I, I guess, not be that that um, satisfying. But then, yeah, you get this adaptation and it's totally different and not that it needed to be the same, but it's totally different in a weird way, and it's trying to hold on to certain things that it doesn't need to. Yeah. It's about this weird trying to s- trying to save a ghost and bring her back to the real world, and like you just knew it wasn't going to work, so there was no real like yeah. conflict there. It's like, of course, it's not going to work. I think ghost stories can be really interesting in this regard, and uh, this kind of story of it's about like the ability to move on and like be at peace and metaphorically like the challenge 
of dealing with grief as a human being is, is an interesting topic, but none of that really comes through here. This is about a guy who's trying to take his sister out of the underworld and bring her back to life in a way that makes no fucking sense. Was she going to get granted a new body? Like, I don't, I don't, none of this makes sense to me. I thought at one point he was going to swap his life for hers too. And I was like, that seems like it could make sense in this sort of story, but that didn't happen. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, this doesn't work. Um, so the, yeah, we'll give it to the story. Okay, man, that's going to be the end of our coverage for Cabinet of Curiosities. Um, you know, mixed bag overall, but, you know, we had some fun with it. We are going to announce our very next project at the end of the episode. So stick around for that. If you enjoyed our scattershot, uh, interesting style of coverage. If you enjoyed our, our use of the timer, which is a new thing for us, um, you know, let us know on social media, but also let us know in the form of a rating and review on whatever uh, app you chose to listen on as that continues to be the best way to get the word out and to sort of elevate us in the rankings out there. Also, be sure to connect with us on social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, all of those at ink to film Yeah, still still hanging on at Twitter for now. Uh, Going to be curious to see if this website, it's, it's almost too big to fail, <laughs> which is <laughs> an ironic term, of course, because things that are too big to fail often do. Um, and I'll be curious to see if it can weather this this chaos that's on there right now. For those of you who are on the app, uh, some wild shit's been going on over there. Well, it depends on how how f- if free speech is upheld or not. You know, it's like <laughs> the the fucking owner now is kind of a loose cannon, and he's he's not uh, standing by his morals. Yeah, if you make fun of him, you're banned. Right. Free speech is now legal, except for except for where Musk's. Uh, concerned anyway also if you wanted to support us on patreon we are patreon.com slash ink to film that's where we'll have our episode talking about the other three uh non-adaptations from cabinet of curiosities um that's also where you're going to be able to vote on our upcoming quarterly project so that's the place to be and we'd love to have a few more supporters on there we could definitely use your help uh in, in keeping this thing running keeping our lights on for the podcast uh so check it out see our different tiers we'd love to have you there And thank you to Dylan Owen for the use of our intro and outro music. All right. The only thing left to do is to announce our next project. We are going uh, uh, by design. We are trying to move in a completely different direction, do something wildly different. There was a movie that came out in the uh, 2000s called The Illusionist with Edward Norton. Um, I remember seeing this uh, in the theater and liking it. But beyond that, I can tell you very little about it. And we found out it's based on a short story. So we're going to combo that. We're going to do a little combo coverage on it and revisit The Illusionist to see if it still holds up. Yeah, let's see if it has any magic left in it. <laughs> well, and that ambiguity, uh, I remember it being an, like that, that was something that this movie actually did well. So it'll be interesting by comparison to talk about doing ambiguity right. So hopefully that'll be fun. And uh, if that's a movie and a project that you're interested in, hopefully you join us for that. And until next time, keep adapting. <laughs>